Hey, it's Dr. Sarah and Alicia here, and you are listening to the Pregnancy for Professionals podcast. Our goal is to bring forward evidence-based information from all disciplines, supporting pregnant people through their journey to becoming new parents. From physicians to midwives, nurses to physiotherapists, and everyone in between. Make sure to fill out the quick survey in the show notes to let us know which topics you are interested in learning about and to make sure we are serving you, our maternity care provider community, well. Don't forget, the information on this podcast is for educational purposes only. Please consult with your team and your community for individual medical decisions that need to be made. Check us out on Instagram at pregnancy for professionals to find informative and educational posts for both you and that you can use for your patients. Well, Dr. Vanya Petrovich, it's so nice to see you. Vanya and I went to med school together, and we were on the same orientation team with Lee Glazier. And who else was on our team? Oh, my God. I don't remember. Are you aware that was 20 years ago? No, I was going to say that it was just a few years ago, Vanya. <laughs> Both of us have aged no. so well. I know. 2003, Alicia. I know. It's crazy. Time flies when you're having mm -hmm. fun. And part mm -hmm. of the fun we're having is doing this podcast together. And I'm really excited to do this. So this is some new and emerging, I don't know how new it is, but certainly it's not very out there information around pregnancy as a stress test and what that means for people from a long-term cardiovascular point of view. So Vanya, why don't we start off by you introducing yourself and who you are and what you do and what's brought you to do this type of work. And then we'll get into the podcast. Sure. So thank you for having me. Um, as you said, I'm Vanya Petrovic. I'm one of the general internists here in Victoria. And although most of my practice is general internal medicine and old people, um, and, and a bigger and bigger part of my practice has been obstetrical medicine and looking after pregnant women was primarily cardiovascular issues. And in particular, my interest is in following these women long term and seeing them through their life um, after they've had uh, pregnancy-associated complications. So yeah, I think that's what we'll talk about today. Perfect. So why don't we get into it a little bit? We're not going to talk too much about the actual pregnancy part of it. We're going to focus more on the kind of the long-term prevention piece. But in terms of identifying those who are at risk for that long-term cardiovascular piece, what are the risk factors in pregnancy and kind of what numbers are we talking about? What percentage of the population are we looking at? So it's surprisingly common and incidence is rising. Um, so pregnancy associated complications include, hyper, broadly speaking, hypertensive disorders of pregnancy, preeclampsia and eclampsia, gestational diabetes, uh, preterm birth, IUGR and pregnancy loss. I think from internal medicine perspective, we talk a lot about pregnancy-induced hypertensive disorders and gestational diabetes, and we forget about those obstetrical things like preterm birth, IUGR, and pregnancy loss. So those are important to inquire about. And they're common. So incidence is rising. 10 to 20% of all pregnancies are affected by at least one of these complications. Yeah, I think we're doing a project together. We're just finishing up. And I think we ran our numbers and it was almost close to 30% in our population. And part yes. of that is we're the tertiary center for our, our kind of larger community. But yeah, it, it's incredible how many people are affected by it. It is. Yeah. So uh, yeah, in Victoria, I was going to say one in every three or four pregnancies is affected, which is incredible. And uh, we know that all of these are associated with future maternal cardiovascular disease risk. Not long ago, when we trained, we were taught that these are 
diseases or complications that are limited to pregnancy and are short in duration. And we were taught that the cure for preeclampsia was to deliver the baby and then we can forget about it uh, once the abnormal parameters normalize. And women went on without any specific follow-up. So now there is mounting body of evidence that all of these adverse pregnancy outcomes are associated with increased risk to varied degrees. So identifying these women early on gives us an opportunity to intervene early and treat the vascular dysfunction in the subclinical phase, uh, potentially preventing or delaying onset of overt cardiovascular disease. What kind of risks are we talking about? So what are the numbers that we're looking at if somebody's <clears throat> diagnosed with hypertensive disorders of pregnancy? What is their increased risk over their lifetime? Just as a background, hypertensive disorders of pregnancy um, happen in 6 to 8% of all pregnancies. And our risk of hypertension later in life is greatest with gestational hypertension. 20% of women who develop preeclampsia will be hypertensive within 10 to 15 years following that pregnancy, a fairly high number. And there's also, there seems to be a dose response relationship. So the more severe the pregnancy-related complication the more likely a woman is to develop cardiovascular disease or hypertension down the road. Or if there's more than one pregnancy with a pregnancy-associated complication, again, those women are at higher risk compared to those who only had one. When it comes to diabetes, again, very common, 6 to sometimes even 10% of all pregnancies, depending on the population. And this is a particularly important group of women to look at because their risk of diabetes is 10 fold compared to general population. And not only are they at high risk, but their risk starts very early. So within three to five years, one third of these women will develop diabetes. So important to offer them early and frequent surveillance. And in addition to that, gestational diabetes is an independent risk factor for cardiovascular disease, even in the absence of preeclampsia. Which is interesting because I just assumed, again, I make assumptions sometimes, that mm -hmm. it's the gestational diabetes and the subsequent diabetes that increases the risk for cardiovascular disease. But in fact, they're two, they're independent risk There's factors. This, it, it appears that way, yeah. It's hard to know because pregnancy-associated complications in cardiovascular disease share similar pathophysiology and similar risk factors such as diabetes and hypertension and dyslipidemia. It's really uh, difficult to know, and it is not known whether pregnancy simply unmasks these women who are at high risk, or does pregnancy kind of trigger or initiate a pathway that eventually culminates in enough endothelial injury that it manifests as cardiovascular disease, or is it all cumulative? You sustain some cardiovascular injury during that pregnancy, and then again during another pregnancy, and then down the road again. It is very difficult to tease these things out because there are so many shared pathways. Yeah, that's really challenging. So we talked about a few of the pregnancy-associated complications and their risk factors, but certainly females, women, people who identify as women, I guess people who have uteruses, also have other risk factors that can be associated with long-term cardiovascular disease. Now, obviously, pre-existing hypertension is going to be one of those, but what are some of those other things? So I'm thinking kind of PCOS, autoimmune diseases, and how do we take that into consideration when we're talking about risk with people? Yeah, that's a great question. There, there are lots and lots of additional risk factors that are specific to women that we don't typically account for when we screen for cardiovascular disease, and they aren't part of any risk scores such as Framingham. 
but we know that timing of menarche either too early or too late can be can increase the risk of cardiovascular disease premature menopause either spontaneous or surgical as you mentioned PCOS is a big risk factor and once again PCOS shares many uh, has many things in common with metabolic syndrome and often these women have a risk for diabetes hypertension etc other risk factors are breast cancer, both disease and treatment for it, hormone therapy, uh, autoimmune disease, uh, chronic inflammatory diseases such as lupus or rheumatoid arthritis, and lactation may be protective in terms of cardiovascular disease risk. So there are many variables that aren't routinely taking into account uh, when we assess cardiovascular disease risk that we should probably think about at least. I was, so I'm a family doctor, anybody who doesn't know that, and I'm an ish kind of medicine. I don't remember details. I was reading an article in The Lancet the other day, Vanya, and I saw that <laughs> autoimmune diseases increases your cardiovascular risk by 1.4 to 3.6 times over your lifetime. I've always wanted mm -hmm. to quote something from The Lancet, but there I did. <laughs> Didn't actually read the whole article. I think I read the abstract, but it sounded pretty cool. But I think it is something yeah. that we don't really take into consideration, especially as primary care providers. We don't, I, I haven't anyways. And so I'm starting to really do much better kind of obstetrical history with my patients who are in their 40s, 50s, 60s that I just didn't necessarily ask before and starting to do some more Definitely. screening. And then considering those, my patients with rheumatoid arthritis, so antiphospholipid antibody syndrome as a bit higher risk from a cardiovascular point of view, because the screening tools that we use are not taking those into account either. Absolutely. Yeah. So current risk assessment really doesn't take any of that into consideration. Yeah. So we've identified those people who are potentially at higher risk for long-term cardiovascular disease. How do we counsel them in primary care when you're seeing them? How are we counseling them on what they can do to re decrease their risk from a kind of a quote-unquote lifestyle point of view? So you mentioned lactation, so breastfeeding for up to a year postpartum, it looks like it's protective. What are the other things that you talk to people about, Vanya? So up until recently, we didn't have any guidance on this, really. We would extrapolate from Canadian best practice guidelines. But recently, uh, Dr. Nuremberg helped create the Canadian Post-Pregnancy Clinical Network, which connected I think 20 clinics across the country. And the goal was to, for this group, was to establish best practices for caring for pregnant people who have had a pregnancy-associated complications and long-term follow-up. And the general recommendations are what you might expect. So lactation support, as you mentioned, healthy nutrition, physical activity greater than 150 minutes per week, maintenance of healthy body weight, good sleep, stress management, uh, encouraging smoking cessation. And then we'll talk a bit more about cardiometabolic risk factor screening. All of these uh, make perfect sense. There aren't necessarily, there isn't necessarily good infrastructure to execute this and support women in healthy nutrition and maintenance of healthy body weight and smoking cessations. I uh, certainly go through these and try to emphasize how important it is because I think that women postpartum are particularly motivated to make healthy changes and they're a captive audience. So it's a good time to talk to them about this. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think some things that we often don't think of, again, I'm speaking from a family practice point of view, and I know you do a lot of counseling around kind of dietary modifications. 
is getting people more support for their weight loss. We know that obesity is a chronic disease and there's many hormones that come into play and there's lots of new medications coming out. So there's people who specialize in this. So if people are struggling, doing their best with implementing dietary and exercise, but they're just not able to do that, then make sure that we think about actually referring them off to somebody who specializes in that or looking into it ourselves as care providers for these patients, because it's it's more than just diet and exercise. There's huge amounts of mental health involved. There's huge amounts of coping skills. There's huge amounts of past trauma. And there's huge amounts of actually it being a chronic disease like any other chronic disease. And sometimes we need more yep. support. So I think just let's not forget about that piece of the puzzle. And the same goes around the mental health piece, because that's huge for all of it. But yeah. Um, absolutely. Yes. I, in Victoria, sorry to interrupt you. Um, I, I think there are quite a few, there are resources in terms of help with healthy weight management. I know that some of your colleagues are doing group sessions and counseling, and there are quite a few physicians who advocate for therapeutic carbohydrate restriction, and I am a, a huge fan of that. So I think locally, at least, I know that we do have uh, some resources to help women with this. And I think it's becoming more and more that way in other communities as well. So reach out to your networks and figure out what's available in your communities. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we chatted about that quote unquote lifestyle management. So let's get more to that kind of longer term follow up from a primary care or a specialist point of view in terms of what should we be ordering for labs? What investigations should we be doing? What follow up for blood pressure and cholesterol, et cetera, et cetera, should we be doing for our patients? Mm -hmm. So let's talk about hypertension first, maybe. That immediate postpartum period is critical for blood pressure surveillance because if a woman was hypertensive or had preeclampsia, then she requires close follow-up to make sure her blood pressure normalizes, to make sure her antihypertensive therapy is weaned as needed. Similarly, she may be at risk for severe hypertension postpartum in up to six weeks. So I think the um, first two weeks are absolutely critical for blood pressure surveillance and even more so with those with uh, severe hypertension and uh, antihypertensive therapy. And then beyond the six month uh, period, this is the point where we need to screen people for chronic hypertension. So if they were hypertensive at the six month point, they have chronic hypertension. And at that point, we need to start the workup, essentially. <clears throat> they need to be evaluated for workup of secondary causes of hypertension. And this is often who I see is patients who are persistently hypertensive um, to uh, beyond the six months. And then after that, annual follow-up at a minimum. I think that's the short uh, answer in terms of follow-up long-term. In terms of treatment, I don't know if you wanted to touch on that. Yeah, um, I think some important things to talk about. So you know, that for that kind of ongoing follow-up, we're taking their blood pressure in the office, we're doing a lipid profile, we're doing a sugar screen, just to ensure that those are within the quote-unquote normal expectations and using, talk about using the Framingham risk score. But it's hard to use the, some of these <clears throat> scoring calculators that we currently have because they really don't take into account. Yeah, if you use the Framingham risk score, uh, which is really the only thing we have, it 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 is a risk. I'm sure everyone's familiar, but it uses the gender, age, blood pressure, lipids, smoking, and vascular disease, as well as diabetes. I think most women at childbearing age would fall into the low risk category using Framingham. 
and uh, none of the female-specific risk factors are including. There are a number of studies that looked at adding adverse pregnancy outcomes to Framingham, and this results in improvement for cardiovascular disease prediction. And once again, risk is cumulative. The current guide, the current lipid guidelines actually do include adverse pregnancy outcomes and consider them uh, a risk modifier. So if we talk about treatment of lipids, then anybody who has uh, high risk obviously has indication for treatment. Those with moderate risk, I think you can use a pregnancy-related complication as a risk modifier and uh, I think that that could sway you to think that perhaps statin therapy is uh, indicated. So this is something to discuss with the patient when deciding to initiate statins for primary prevention in this group of women, as we really have no data in terms of primary prevention in women with pregnancy-associated complications. I just wanted to mention in terms of lipid screening around the time of pregnancy, any woman who has had a hypertensive disorder of pregnancy should have a screening lipid panel six months after delivery, regardless of breastfeeding status. If lipids are abnormal, then they should be repeated once breastfeeding is finished, as breastfeeding can elevate lipid profiles. Interesting. Yeah. So if you see an elevated liver or sorry, elevated lipid profile postpartum, then consider repeating it at a year mark uh, or whenever they're done breastfeeding. I think another piece of information to add into this discussion is talking about uh, the family planning piece of the puzzle, because some of the things that we're going to be chatting about is medications and when to start and how to start and what to choose. And if this person is sitting in front of you at six months and planning on having another baby and looking at getting pregnant in the next three to six months, you're probably going to modify your recommendations based on that fact. And the other really important piece is these people should be offered preconception counseling with a specialist in the area for decreasing the risk in subsequent pregnancies. So just something to think about at that six-month mark is talking around family planning and what their goals are. So you can cater, is that the right term? Cater, modify your recommendations based on that. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, statins in pregnancy are, I don't want to say contraindicated because we do use them in certain situations, but there are significant considerations there if there is going to be another pregnancy in close proximity. One may consider a lipophilic statin, such as provastatin or uh, rosuvastatin, which are associated with fewer malformations, congenital malformations than, for example, torvastatin or simvastatin. Definitely need to take that into consideration. Similarly, with treatment of hypertension, if you need to put somebody on an ACE or an ARB for proteinuric uh, hypertension, one should take into consideration their family planning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in pregnancy, often for antihypertensives, we use nifedipine or we use labetalol are the two that we choose, perhaps if they're going to be having another pregnancy soon or just letting them know that they need to switch over and come see you as soon as they get that pregnancy test. That's positive. Yeah. And I certainly had a patient that we did that with back and forth and back and forth and it worked fine for her and she was responsible about it. Okay, great. And then the other piece of the puzzle is we talked more about hypertensive disorders of pregnancy. Let's talk a little bit about gestational diabetes and kind of the ongoing screening for that, management for that, and then any kind of... Yeah, yeah. So as we already mentioned, these women are at very high risk for developing over diabetes very soon after their pregnancy. So they should have uh, a screening test as soon as six weeks to six months postpartum and then annually. 
And the frequency can depend on their personal risk that can be assessed. And I, I think that Dr. Nuremberg's guidelines will include like patient convenience mm -hmm. factors for screening recommendations, such as doing an A1C instead of an OGTT or a fasting glucose in the postpartum moment, which is very kind. And uh, otherwise, the recommendations are the same as for non-pregnant people. So health behavior modifications, pharmacotherapy, targeting an A1C of less than 7%, and uh, counseling on weight control and counseling on loss of gestational weight by when you're postpartum, if possible. Awesome. Anything that we have not touched on that you think is important for our listeners to hear before we wrap up? I think the main message I have is that adverse pregnancy outcomes offer a unique window into a woman's future cardiovascular health. And recognizing that cardiovascular disease risk is up to four times higher in these women offers us an opportunity to screen early and intervene early. And we should remember that this risk increases immediately postpartum. We have a lot of time uh, to modify that risk and to potentially improve outcomes down the road. Yeah. And I think a big piece of that is patient education. And so we've created a few handouts for patients, posters for offices. So we'll link those on our website, our Pregnancy for Professionals website. We also created a couple of patient-focused podcasts, so on our She Found Motherhood podcast, so we'll link those below if people are looking for kind of reliable information. And we based our podcast essentially off of this similar information, so they're relatively up-to-date and patient-focused, so make sure to check those out. But yeah, so thank you, Vanya, for coming and talking today. We reviewed the risk factors for long-term cardiovascular risk. We chatted about what that actually means from an increased risk point of view and lifestyle modifications, long-term kind of screening and management of these people and how important it is and what a wonderful opportunity it is to be able to recognize these people and make significant changes in their trajectory if, by working with them with this information. So really appreciate your time today. Thank you for having me. Anytime. Thanks for listening. Make sure to check out our website at www.shefoundhealth.ca and to sign up for our community for weekly bump blasts. Make sure to check us out on Instagram or Facebook at she.found.motherhood and head on over to your favorite podcast app and leave a review and a five-star rating. If you enjoyed this podcast, take a pic of yourself listening to it and share it on social. Make sure to tag us on it so we know to keep making them.